Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. It's important that we lift them up and give them good housing and pull them out rather than make the housing affect maybe their mood or how they're feeling. There's a role to play for design and for architecture in that. How do we ensure that a city's housing stock stays in step with its population? Today we look at the different ways municipalities are ensuring their growing numbers of residents have a place to call home. We're in Canada exploring a hot new trend in affordable housing. We visit a Danish project encouraging residents to embrace community-mindedness. And we see how a focus on design on Australia's Gold Coast is giving residents a sense of pride in their public housing. All of that coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. It's a fact that we hear on this show on a regular basis. Cities across the globe are growing fast and many local authorities are failing to keep up with building new, affordable housing. The result is a housing crisis, which many of the world's largest and fastest growing urban centres are experiencing. But in Canada, a new and rather innovative plan for where to situate new housing is sounding the alarm for urban planners around the globe. Well, in a good way. I'm joined now by Matty Simiatiki, the director of the Infrastructure Institute and a professor of geography and planning from the University of Toronto. Matty is also involved with the School of Cities, which acts as a hub for research related to cities, as well as a bridge between the university and activities in the surrounding community. Matty, thank you for joining us. In a moment, we're going to look at this very interesting pilot project coming out of the School of Cities. But before we look at that, can you just tell us about the situation in Toronto? The city is, of course, a global magnet for new migrants to Canada and a fast-growing city. What are some of the housing pressures that Toronto is currently facing? We're in the midst of a housing crisis, which is having a cascading impact on our city. Prices have skyrocketed over the past few years through the pandemic, and along with it has been a crisis of homelessness, has been issues around drug overdoses, has been issues around public transit and road safety, have been issues around urban vitality and what's going to happen to our main streets. So you have all of these intersecting dynamics that are influenced by this housing crisis. And Canada receives hundreds of thousands of immigrants per year in a typical non-COVID year. And the Toronto region receives about 100,000 newcomers every year. So the population has been growing quickly for a number of decades now. And all of these folks need places to live. And they also need the accompanying public services and then retail and commercial and employment opportunities. And so this is what I mean when I say there's this intersecting and also cascading crisis that happens when a city becomes as unaffordable as a city like ours. Newcomers find it increasingly difficult to come here and we risk people deciding to go elsewhere. That's one potential challenge. And also young people and new families find it increasingly difficult to find a landing spot here and to feel at home here. And we also risk losing their dynamism and contribution both socially and economically to our community. So it really is a microcosm. What's happening in Toronto is a microcosm of what's happening in global cities around the world. 
Now tell me, you've come up with this pilot project, which is about building residential units above a fire station. Tell us why you think this is an important idea and, and how this could begin to dent, the, as you say, the epic proportions of the housing crisis that you have in Toronto. This is an example, and we put it forward as a pilot and an example of how public lands can be used more efficiently in order to provide excellent spaces for public services to be provided and also places for people to live. The fire stations jump out because they're so visceral, because people can picture a fire station. They can picture, in most cases, a one-story building with some fire station bays and then maybe a floor for a dormitory for the firefighters up above. And you know, it's so noticeable that in many instances, the cities have grown and emerged and evolved around the fire station, where you'll see high rise buildings or mid rise buildings where people live right around and above the fire station, but the fire station itself above it is often just a two or three story building. And what we've put forward is this concept that we can rebuild an aging fire station here in Toronto that is not fit for purpose anymore. The facility itself is aged and does need to be rehabilitated. So it needs to be rebuilt. But in rebuilding it, we can also provide spaces for people to live. And affordable housing is a really important use. Again, because of the crisis we're in, we can capture some of the value of those air rights up above that building and reinvest that money both into providing affordable housing and in rebuilding the fire station as well. So it's this concept that gets you thinking about what's possible. And the fire station is just a starting point. I mean, in our city and in many cities in North America, at least, we have community centers, we have libraries, we have schools that are often two-story buildings surrounded by massive parking lots. We can start to reuse and readapt that space in so many interesting and novel ways so that, again, the public service gets re invested in and actually gets upgraded. And you're also providing important places for people to live. And the financing, you can use the money that's generated from development to help pay for, to help bid down the cost of the rents and to help pay for the rehabilitation and reconstruction of excellent quality public spaces. So this is how we've come to this idea. And we think Toronto has about 130 fire stations and ambulance posts. Now, some of them are already in locations that can't be redeveloped, but even if it's a fraction of that number that could be, you're starting to see what's possible when you think about public lands in a different way and start to think about co-location as a way of building a city. In essence, it's an interesting example of how you could put housing, I guess, above schools and kindergartens and all sorts of spaces if they were part of the, the public ownership of those properties. That's exactly right. And in many instances, those properties are already publicly owned. And that's what's so important. I mean, when you think about a development, a big cost of that development is the land value. And whoever is doing that development has to pay market prices for that land. In the instances we're talking about schools or recreation centers or libraries or fire stations, that land is already publicly owned. And so that's a huge head start when we're talking about affordability. If in exchange for providing that land at low cost or no cost, someone offers to provide lower rents on the units that are built, or that land is sold and the money is reinvested into the public spaces. Importantly, with fire stations, this is a model that's actually already been done elsewhere. Vancouver has recently opened a fire station with a mid-rise building with affordable housing up above. Victoria, British Columbia is in the process of rebuilding one of their downtown stations. 
with this model. In Washington, D.C., there's a fire station with an athletic center up above. And in New York City, there's a high-rise building with a fire station on the main floor as well. So this is a model that's done. But I think more widely, it still takes some getting used to when you first hear it. Once you think it through and you realize what's possible and that we can come up with ways of both architecturally and from a planning perspective, designing these spaces, it really does get the imagination going about how many other types of public services there are where we could start to do exciting co-locations and start to provide affordable and quality places for people to live. One small wrinkle in the plan. Do you have to give people earplugs? So noise comes up all the time when we raise this idea. And what you find when you uh, look into fire stations a little bit in a bit more detail is they're already located in neighborhoods. So fire stations already have neighbors and people who live right beside them. And people make that choice because it continues to be a good place to live. So noise has not dissuaded everyone. And the other point is that the fire service rarely turns on the siren right in front of their own building and certainly not inside the building. So even still, while you will have trucks coming and going, the noise is manageable. And the other point is we can then design the building in such a way to try to manage for noise. So this is an active space. And one thought that comes to mind, the fire station that we're looking at here in Toronto is one at, for people that know Toronto, it's at the intersection of Bloor and Sherburne. And the station actually already has a daycare on the third floor up above. And you can think of a daycare with, you know, kids who take naps throughout the day. And that hasn't been a problem. That daycare has been there for some time. So that hasn't been a problem. And in fact, in some ways, there is a segment of the population that sees being co-located with an emergency service as a real advantage. You know, people who, you know, might need a first responder who can get to them much more quickly or feels safety and security from being co-located in a building with a fire station. So there are real advantages. And I think when it comes to noise, there are definitely ways to mitigate that concern. One final question. I've been to Toronto a few times. And as an outsider, the thing that strikes you, I think, is you know, that you have this, this high-rise downtown core and this high-rise strip along the side of the lake. But you only have to drive a couple of kilometres and suddenly you don't go, as in London, you'd go to then more densely packed neighbourhoods and then slightly less densely packed neighbourhoods. You can travel just a couple of kilometres and suddenly you're in a neighbourhood that is like bungalows with huge gardens and very, very spaced out properties. Is there a debate also that perhaps you know, that densification needs to happen just a few more kilometres out? Because that's the other strange thing about Toronto. It feels very different to a European city. Here we call that tall and sprawl in describing the way that our city has evolved. You have just exactly as you described in the downtown core and at key nodes throughout the city, you have very tall buildings. In fact, in many cases, as tall, if not taller than in, in most European cities. And then by contrast, much of the city, large portions of the city are very low density. We also call it the missing middle, that the types of mid-rise buildings that you would have that spread across much of a European city, we've had a very hard time building that type of urban form. The tall and sprawl pattern is largely a function of our planning regime. Much of the city has been zoned for single family homes and has been kind of frozen in time because of the way we've done zoning. And so as a result, in the parts of the city where developers can build, they try to push to go as tall as possible because the city will encourage development and they can get approvals to go tall. Now, the fire station, to come back to the fire station proposal for a moment, the types of built forms that it allows are really 
really expansive. You can build a mid-rise building on top of a fire station. And we have many stations in the inner suburbs that could be prime locations on arterial roads near public transit, where you could build mid-rise buildings up above them. And we also have some sites that might be more amenable to high-rise buildings. And so alongside this approach of rethinking our public spaces, Toronto is also in the midst of debates about how to intensify some of those more low-rise areas. There's been discussions about garden suites, for example, and laneway homes. Behind a lot of the houses here, we have laneway access for parking. And there's talk about, actually, they've passed rules that you can now start to develop homes on top of your garage. So that's another way of intensification. And there's been a big debate also about whether we should allow four-story apartment walk-ups in neighborhoods as well. So this is the evolution of planning here that's trying to respond to exactly what you described of this, this urban form that in some ways has created an environment where you have either very tall buildings or relatively small urban sprawling type of landforms without much in between. Matthew Simiatiki of the University of Toronto's School of Cities. Thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. To Denmark now to see how a community housing project in Ringsted is embracing the Danish concept of Samfensen, which loosely translates as social mindedness. Monocle's Megan Ravel visited the cooperative built on the site of an old sawmill to speak with the residents and find out more. The Danish spirit of Samfensind is alive and well in the Eustrop Sawmill Project, a co-housing community situated outside one of Denmark's busiest transit cities, Ringsted. I think that Samfensind is an integral part of Danish and Nordic culture. It's a part of our soul that is so deeply rooted that trying to define it is almost impossible. The Danish language board We define it as to put the interest of society higher than your own interests. The idea of Samfensind, a Danish term consisting of the words for society and mind, is clear in every facet of the cooperative's design. From the vast open-plan kitchen and dining space where everyone congregates, to its bucolic surroundings, complete with chickens and a sauna, of course. I was first met and shown around by Asker Kianis Obel, one of around 30 adult residents, there are about as many children, who told me why communal living is a lifestyle choice he feels passionately about. Justrup Salwerk, it was built in 1984 and it houses 21 apartments. 50% of the whole house is common areas. And that is where we meet. It's an extension of each apartment. We eat together six days a week for dinner. Van Kunsten Architects designed the space with the first cohort of residents in the 1980s. They drew upon ideas about community and democracy, established in their manifest-like Project 35, which was completed in 1970, and implemented them in Eustrop on a smaller and more manageable scale. Urban planner and business consultant Penilla Beck explains more about the project's genesis and design. It's created by a very famous uh, group of architects. Together with the first people who moved in here, they designed it together with the architects. And they call it a slipper community. And the slipper community is a house where many people live together, have their own home, but don't have to go out of the slippers to visit each other. We are just about 75 
person's souls from the age of uh, two months to 83 years old. There's two main streets, but they are covered with uh, glass in the roof. So when you go out of your front door, you don't actually go out. You go out in like an indoor street. So everybody meet each other at this indoor street. And we have uh, plants. There are wine plants in the ceiling. We, we make wine, actually. And it tastes horrible, but we drink it anyway. <laughs> the pleasing aesthetics of the space in this case is only part of the story. It's the sense of social cohesion that the design encourages that is the real goal for this housing project, something that was clear to see amid the bustle of one of the monthly workdays. In a break from his weekend chores, actor and resident Adam Ilrowida told me more about the cooperation that this uniquely designed cooperative helps to facilitate. This place is kind of a nice picture, like a microcosm of something somehow, that we are like an anthill working together and... I'm not doing it for the benefit of myself, I'm doing it for the benefit of, you know, everyone here. I've been living here for two and a half years, approximately, and I think living here is very much kind of a, you know, very condensed, intense version of San Francisco because we are all affected by each other who lives here. The idea of us doing things together, and, you know, we have scout groups, we have community sports groups. We have all these kind of things that require people to invest themselves, you know, for the whole, for everybody's sake. So, uh, well, Samfonsin is very much part of being Danish. I think we all have the consideration of the whole. For Monocle in Ustrup, I'm Megan Revel. Now, many public housing developments can often lack imagination in their design, leaving residents without a strong attachment to or pride in the place that they call home. These feelings were directly addressed by Australian architect Anna O'Gorman and her practice AOG Architects in their project at Anne Street Garden Villas on the Gold Coast. And, lucky for them, it even landed them a pick for Best Social Project in Monocle Magazine's 2022 Design Awards. The project sees a collection of unique social housing dwellings with independent identities, allowing tenants to feel a sense of personal ownership and pride. Monocle's Nick Manise recently caught up with Anna O'Gorman to discuss the project. I guess to start, this project was commissioned by the Queensland State Government as a demonstration project to show the potential for building better social housing. Can you tell us why this competition was launched? It's a design competition that focused on ideas around the missing middle. So a lot of, you know, cities across Australia and probably across the world, but more so in Australia, would have suburban lots with detached housing. And then we go to cities with apartment living. So there's this missing in-between type of housing. So the competition was aiming to generate ideas around how do we tackle that, what's some ideas that we can sort of put forward to developers, government and people who are building these projects. So we entered that and we were awarded accommodation. So the competition was run by the Office of Queensland Government Architect. So then out of the competition, the government started 10 
demonstration projects, of which Ann Street was one. And so they looked back to the competition winners or commended winners to design these projects. And then the learnings from those projects then folded back into a queue design document that then informs the design of social housing in Queensland going forward. So I think at the time, I just was interested in being a part of the problem solving of how do we deal with this missing middle. But it has been a really good thing to be a part of. And it's great that it's demonstrated the value that design brings to our urban areas and communities and people. I think that makes perfect sense. And I guess just building on that, you know, you're addressing the missing middle here, but I I guess you're also trying to tackle the common problems associated with public housing. You know, typically when we think of public housing, it might be a big building sort of standing on its own with a huge car park around it or in a sea of turf with no trees. Can you tell me how you approach these issues and I guess what research went into addressing them? We felt that now that we're needing to build more housing than ever before, there's big demand to build housing. It's important to demonstrate well-designed developments that leave a positive future legacy to the next generation that are considerate of the environment and considerate of people, not just the people living there, but the people in the surrounding community. So we did undertake a lot of research which informed our design and part of that research included visits to local exemplar projects but also visits to current social housing where things weren't working very well so it allowed us to I think take stock talk to the current tenants find out what was working what wasn't working and that then informed the design. I mean so you you do the research can you tell me about talking to the tenants I know you had workshops in the lead up to this how did that inform the design? We also had two workshops with tenants and it was run really well by Susie and Laura from Surroundings where we participated alongside the tenants and also with the government representatives and the housing managers. So it was a really good snapshot of what are the key things that we need to target in our design and what do we need to keep and what do we need to change? And some of those things were things like access to nature and a garden, which you automatically know is something that people enjoy, but you don't see that often in social housing projects. Other simple things like natural light and ventilation, which they're easy to build into a project and don't necessarily cost extra money. Connection with people to help feelings of isolation because typically in social housing, it's easier to manage people if they're all separated and two metre high fences are installed, but that doesn't always help with feelings of isolation, which I think is a key thing to try and resolve for people in social housing. But in saying that, there's also a need for adequate privacy, especially to private areas like bedrooms or having a private outdoor space that you can feel like you can be outside with fresh air and daylight, but not feel like you have to be with all the other tenants. And then safety and security was also important. So having a space that could be, for example, in Ann Street, having the communal garden overlooked by all the units meant that 
people using that space would feel safe and secure. I want to ask about identity as well. I know from our discussions off air, you talked about making small design moves, things like changing the colour of each of the homes in the development and, and every home having its own mailbox, you know, a standalone mailbox rather than being in a, in a big cluster. Can you tell me a little bit about those things that maybe helped people to feel more at home in a social housing context? We wanted tenants to feel settled in their new home and so it was important to give them a sense of ownership over their residence. So we deliberately defined each home, even though they're quite close together and it's quite condensed, we wanted to give a sense of individual homes within the site. So the form of them is separated and there's a pop-out that comes into the garden that is replicated across but at different scales. So as you move to the triplex where there's two apartments above and one below, we still continued the pop-out which defined that person's unit and then we used colour. So on the Gold Coast, the housing from the 50s and 60s and 70s all had quite amazing pops of colour. So we used some of those colours to give a sense of fun but also allow for that independence or individuality so it didn't feel like same same sort of housing but you know helped with creating a sense of a village and community or a family but individuality within that. Finally, I guess an observation I have and the thing that I particularly liked about this project is that it just looks like a beautiful place to live. And I I think that's really nice. I think sometimes we maybe design social housing projects to just hit target numbers and tick boxes, but these seem like a place that I'd want to move into. And I think that's really special. I mean, have you got any thoughts on that or I guess any final comments on that? From the get-go when we started the project, that was our key vision was to make a place that didn't feel like social housing, but everyone would want to live there. And I think with social housing, rather than putting them in boxes with very bad lighting, I think we need to lift the people who are in those situations because they're often people like you and me who have just found themselves in a bad situation and need housing. And I think it's important that we lift them up and give them good housing and pull them out rather than make the housing affect maybe their mood or how they're feeling. There's a role to play for design and for architecture in that. We can't solve it all, but I think there's an important role for design and architecture in social housing, and we definitely need more of that. Anna O'Gorman there in conversation with Monocle's Nick Manise. And that's all for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe for your weekly dose of urbanism every Thursday, as well as new episodes of our sister show, Tall Stories, every Monday. Today's programme was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Madness with Our House. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Quite loud. Our mum, she's so house proud. Nothing.
Nothing ever slows her down and her messes cut her down.